is insubordinate, stubborn, unpredictable. You need the god of mischief. Welcome to episode two of Still Watching Loki. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Uh, if you are just joining us for the first time on Still Watching, this is a show where Richard and I, and occasionally Anthony Breskin joins us. Uh, we like to pick a show that we're watching kind of closely and obsessively and break it down week by week. We've been doing a bunch of Marvel shows recently. Uh, this this might be our last one for a little while, but... Um, here we are in the midst of Loki, episode two. Richard, we got so many emails from listeners about this episode. I can't. But they're can't all from variants of the same emailer. Oh yes, it's all one emailer. Um, yeah, we got a, we got a, um, you know, over over a hundred emails about wow. this episode of Loki. So I did my best to sort of comb through. We got you know a lot of people talking about the same thing, stuff like that. But rest assured. I did read every single, it took me a long time, but I did read every single email. We will be referencing a lot of the things you guys raise, even if we didn't explicitly read your email. This is clearly a show that people want to talk talk about, have their thoughts and, and, and uh, theories uh, out there. So I'm excited. If you too want to join the mail scrum, uh, you can email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Hello, are you there? It's me, Joanna, from the future, from the past, from somewhere else in the timeline uh, than when this original podcast episode was recorded. Uh, with my with my uh, morning, I haven't had coffee yet voice, uh, here to tell you that uh, since this episode two of Loki dropped, I have been made aware that the character that we refer to as Lady Loki throughout the episode, as played by Sofia Martino, um, that that character is listed in some foreign markets... Uh, in the credits as Sylvie, which has fascinating implications for the comic books. Um, there's a character known as Enchantress, uh, also known as Sylvie. She's created by Loki. She lives in Oklahoma. There's all these all these thoughts and questions I have around this idea that maybe this isn't a Loki at all. Big questions about that. So um, I just wanted to let you know that I know that I saw that. Um, that that wasn't information we had access to when we recorded this podcast. And so um, if you want to send me your, your thoughts and questions and comments and concerns about that, please do. Stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. What I'm not looking for is I can't believe you missed. <laughs> what I would prefer instead is this is wild. Here are my thoughts about it. Uh, so that is the vibe we are looking for. Stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. I just want to let you know that I know. And now I'm waiting to hear what you think. Uh, so check in with us. And now back to your regularly scheduled podcast episode. How how like do people in your life want to talk to you about Loki Richard? How's how's it landing with your with your folks and friends? My mom text messaged me to say she was very excited to watch Loki with Tim Hiddlesworth. Um Okay. So, <laughs> so it's on her radar, just a different sort of radar, I guess. She, she tried. Yeah. Uh so we'll be breaking down episode two 
Um, this is an episode that, you know, we got a screener for. This is the last week we'll have a screener in advance. And after that, we'll be watching live along with the rest of you all. Um, so uh, in future weeks, you can even email us after the episode has come out, episode three, and we might be able to read it on air for our weekly discussion. So, but for right now, we're still slightly ahead of the curve with episode two, uh, which means we don't even know what it's titled yet because Disney doesn't tell us what the title is until the episode drops. So spoilers for episode two of Loki abound uh, here in this show. Richard and I are going to break down the episode, some some emails that you guys sent, some questions, all of that. Uh, then we will have uh, an interview. Sometimes we have uh, interviews with folks who work on the show. Oftentimes we do. Sometimes I go rogue and book somewhere, someone else. And this guest actually uh, is here thanks to one of our listeners who emailed in. Uh, Ruth Ann sent in an email and she suggested I read a book called This Is How You Lose the Time War. Mm. Um which came out a couple of years ago uh, and it won like the Hugo and the Nebula and all the, all these awards when it came out. And it is about, it's a book about two warring time agents, uh, one named red, one named blue, uh, who strike up a correspondence like in time and, uh, and leave each other notes in sort of an epistolary sci-fi fantasy romance. And it is, wild and wonderful and when i was tweeting about it a bunch of people were like that was my favorite book that year so i loved reading it uh and the reason ruth ann suggested it is has a lot of like language in common with uh loki um so that book was written by um a great canadian author amal el motar and she wrote it with max gladstone and uh amal joined us on the podcast <laughs> i just like yeah. reached out to her i was like do you want to talk about loki she's like sure i do um so she's here to talk about what it's like to work to write time travel in the multiverse and all of that so and she's a big loki fan so great i mean i'm delighted by this personally so here we go uh, so that will come in the middle of the episode, and then we will hear from our friend Anthony Bresnikin as we get a little bit more uh, nerdy and granular about some comic book stuff. So that is the plan for today. Um, I got some stuff. I, I have an agenda of my own, but Richard, is there anywhere in particular you want to start uh, with this discussion of episode two? Well, I think in the first episode of of of, the, of our podcast about Loki, you and I had both seen the first two episodes, but we really were sticking to the first episode. But we mm-hmm. did talk about like how this is kind of a Doctor Who-y kind of, not case of the week exactly, but sort of, you know, there there's a sort of core thing for each episode to sort of solve. And I think this episode is really where that kicks off. And I, I, I was not sure what to make of the show in the first episode, but when this one really starts grooving, I was like, oh, this is like really cool. I love time jumpy stuff. Um, you know, I, I, I think. It, there's something so kind of brain itchy about it, which is why I'm excited to hear your interview with them all. Cause like, I'm just so curious about like how that works as a writer. Um, and I think so far they are confusing me, but in a fun way. Um, and yeah. So I think this episode for me is like one of the strongest hours of Marvel TV we've seen just in terms of like how it grabbed me and, 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 and in being about how it's about what it's about, I guess. I love that. What do you feel like this hour is about? Um, I, I think it's about Loki figuring out these Time Lordy sort of rules that he's just learned, helping the us and the audience figure it out, but also it's basically Loki is proving so kind of nimble, adaptable that he's like, okay, so I've just learned, in fact, that like 
as an Asgardian god, I'm actually pretty low on the cosmic totem pole of power. <laughs> so now I have a new goal in mind. You know, I, I think the way that he just kind of uh, like scales up so quickly yeah. in, into yeah. being like, oh, now I have a whole new ambition, <laughs> you know, t to rule even more of the universe than I thought was possible. Um, so I think it's kind of a fun um, just evolution for him and, and a good kind of character bit to, to show us that he is um, quick on his feet. And, um, and I, I mean, the scene where he describes with like the food, like with um, Mobius's lunch, like here's how you could hide in a, a Ragnarok-esque event. Um, that was just like pure everything from Indiana Jones to Doctor Who kind of, you know, solving the mystery kind of stuff. And I loved it. Okay, you've, you've referenced to a couple times now, and I'm so excited to find out where are you on your on your watch, uh, your first time through Doctor Who. Um, you... I'm still in Eccleston, you okay. know, um, but uh, just enjoying it. We're we're taking it a little slowly because I I think that that show combined with this and some other TV that's been happening, like I'm just a little bit <laughs> overwhelmed because like I really want to give Doctor Who like my full attention. Yeah. Um, you know, phone down, kind of actually watching, kind of thing. Um, but it just it's that same kind of tone of like. Yes, we know this is nerdy, but we promise you we're going to make it fun. Um, and I and I think they've, they're achieving that in this, the same uh, way they do in Doctor Who. Totally, totally. Uh, I think so, one of our listeners emailed in and said, or maybe someone tweeted at me, said that they felt like th this was if, I don't think you've gotten to the master yet, if you're still in Eccleston, but like this character, the master, who's sort of like the arch nemesis of the doctor and and like also his closest friend, it's, it's sort of. Boyd Crowder, Raylan Given sort of thing. Um, but the, if the master had gone to work for the Time Lords, it's sort of like what Loki feels like to them so far. And one last Doctor Who reference uh, before we roll along from it. Uh, an illusion that I that I neglected to mention last week is that um, uh, I think it's Eugene Cordero's character, Casey, says like, oh, you're that criminal with the blue box to Loki. And talking, of course, about the Tesseract, but um, that's obviously a way that uh, Doctor Who could be described as well within his TARDIS. So um, a fun little Doctor Who joke there. Oh, and I also want to mention last week <laughs> when talking to you, Richard, I, I was sort of praising this Loki wig and I got a lot of feedback from people letting mm -hmm. me know that that is most assuredly actually Tom Hiddleston's hair that he grew out and they died for the for like for this role. Um, and I, I said photographic evidence and all this sort of stuff like that. Something that someone pointed out that's kind of clever is when that robot sort of like burns his suit off of it, off of him. They sort of singe his hair a little bit, too, in a way that like allows it to be a little shorter than it was mm -hmm. um, in Avengers. But that is that is pure Tim Hiddlesworth or whatever it is. You're called it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so there you go. Unless with the photo evidence, unless he's just wearing the wig all the time. Oh my God, he's just made it part of his life. Yeah. Now. Um, here's the question I want to ask you um, before we get in. I mean, we're obviously going to talk about what happens at the very end of this episode, but I want to ask you first given what we've seen of the TVA so far, what is your suspicion about whether or not they are agents of good or agents of evil? I think they would describe themselves as objective, you know, um, mm. and sort of amoral, not immoral, um, mm -hmm. and sort of above such petty concerns. But I think that obviously the question raised by any, any sort of governing body that, that, that has determined itself to just be like fair reasoned arbiters of, of what, you know, life and time or in this case, um, is that like, well, but that is obviously sourced from something individual. Like it's not, you know, 
um, unless they are literally the creators of the universe, in which in which case I guess it's theirs to do with what they want. But um, I, I think that what's probably my guess is what's going to happen with with them is that like there will be a challenge to their authority that then reveals an authoritarian impulse um, that they are not actually the sort of um, and, you know, sort of amoral kind of body that they, they are, they're acting like they are. I think the way that the TVA is coded so far, there's like all these propaganda posters on the wall, yeah. like all this sort of stuff. And, and the way in which the Marvel in the past, and I think a few of our listeners pointed this out in emails, like the way that Marvel has consistently set up these agencies like S.H.I.E.L.D. to be revealed um, as, you know, at the at the very least flawed, if not downright run by Nazis, you know what I mean? So um, with the TVA, the question that I feel like is worth asking, and this isn't comics knowledge, this is because they're doing something different with the TVA here, but like something that's worth asking is like, if a body of people, three three space lizards, <laughs> as Loki keeps referring to them, has determined that a timeline is quote unquote sacred, to me what that means is that there is an outcome that they are anxious, at least one of them is anxious to preserve, right? Mm -hmm. There is some sort of outcome and, and they will prune whatever it takes in order to make sure that that is the outcome that they get. And we saw a version of that in like Avengers Endgame where Doctor Strange said there, you know, I saw all these different versions of the future. There's only one in which we beat Thanos, right? So in theory, that outcome is something that like we can all root for, the Avengers beating Thanos. But what is the timekeeper's agenda? We only have their word for it that it's to prevent the world from decay into chaos. You know what I mean? And and like what we find out in this episode that I think is really interesting is like someone like Mobius, at least ostensibly, claims to have never met the timekeepers. Right. So it's like, who are they and what are their motivations actually? You know? Yeah. And I think if you really wanted to stretch um i have this sort of nation now just talking about it idea that maybe there is kind of buried in there some kind of commentary on like nerd fandom where mm. it's like we are determined we get to decide luke skywalker's best course and there shall be no deviation from this mm. you know kind of thing um but that aside i think just in a, in a more general sense like once you get into an issue of like purity and the perfect timeline the sacred timeline it's like but that that those are those are outwardly imposed standards, you know, and right. so you start to say according to whom, you know, and right. and whether or not that the, these three entities are actual corporeal beings that we're going to meet, or if it maybe becomes more of a sort of like general consciousness or idea, I don't know. But um, I think they are definitely setting up for the TVA to rupture in in some way, um, and where where Loki will kind of move through that disruption, I don't know, but. Um, I my guess is that he'll remain the sort of rakishly anti-heroic figure that he was at the beginning in some senses. I mean, yeah, I think that's the Loki they kind of always want to, at least yeah. some flavor of that is what they always want to give us. Um, I want to talk about Lady Loki, mm -hmm. <laughs> who is the person who appears at the end of this episode, and then we can, I, I that that's actually going to make me want to circle back to this question. So, like, um, Lady Loki is a figure in the comics. Uh, canonically, Loki is sort of a gender uh, fluid, um, has appeared as a woman, as a as a boy, as as various different things uh, in the comics, and and 
I think the the origin of Lady Loki in the comics is that there was like a Ragnarok level event, and uh, a Ragnarok, I think literally, um, and that in that version of Ragnarok there were different bodies waiting for the Asgardian souls to be reincarnated into, and Loki, being the scamp that he is, stole the body that was intended for the character of Lady Sif, who was played by Jamie Alexander in um, a couple of the Thor films, and uh, and so he gets this like super hot um mm-hmm. uh body and 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 does you know does some mischief with it and whatever and that's that's the character of lady loki who then sort of as happens with comics evolved into doing different things but this idea that like loki can be a woman is something that comic book fans have been aware of for a very long time the actress sofia di martino who plays the woman who appears at the end of this episode um was cast <laughs> was sort of touted as the female lead. And since they weren't naming who she was, a lot of people guessed that she might be Lady Loki. Um, But I'm glad that we don't have to like wait long and sort of tiptoe around it. We can just say like, here she is. It's Lady Loki. (laughs) Um, So what did that reveal surprise you? Like, how did you feel about that, Richard? Well, yeah, because I don't know anything about this mythology, you know? Um, And I, I had a suspicion that, you know, because we kept seeing this like hooded figure who you know, Mobius and other people were saying was Loki, but but I had a suspicion that we there was going to be some kind of surprise reveal that it wasn't the Loki that we know. Right. Um, but yeah, I didn't I didn't think this. So I guess my I am understanding it correctly that this is also Loki, right? Yeah. Um, that there is actually no difference except for dimensional time reality stuff, right? It's um, kind of a nature versus nurture thing where it's like Anthony, I think, brought this up uh, in 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 our like hardcore nerd section last week but this idea of like um you know it's a loki who was brought up under very different circumstances so it's still a loki but like you know this loki's american (laughs) not just not just a woman but also american like doesn't Mm -hmm. appear to be as guardian so like what you know what's what's going on there and and so i think you're gonna get like different flavors like how 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 is this same loki personality been shaped by a different experience up uh, you know you, you experiencing life as a woman is going to be different from experiencing life as a man all these different things so like same but different does that yeah. make sense yes it does so lady loki and she's being pitched at least by mobius and the tva as the dangerous villain of this show but i have questions about that mm-hmm. i have i have no spoilers about it but i have questions about it because we only have mobius and the tva's word for it that she's evil right yeah she, she's dangerous and like what we have seen her do is kill a lot of people who work for the tva so if she's not the villain because it's only episode two if she's not the villain that means to me that the tva has to be nefarious if if we find out that she's not actually the villain of the piece she's actually fighting the bad guys who are actually the tva I don't know. That's just sort of where my brain went. What do you think? Well, I think that, yeah, I think that's probably, there's going to be a sort of, not ambivalence, you know, may, maybe the, the show will favor the Loki side of things over the TVA, ultimately. But, you know, they're they're setting up this all-powerful source of authority, and it is a natural narrative instinct to have that authority questioned, you know, and and challenged. And I think that that ethos has not been very prevalent in the Marvel universe. Um, there have been 
you know, years now worth of complaints, and I think justified ones about like its view of the military industrial complex, its supporting of extrajudicial, you know, paramilitary kind of uh, adventuring across America or across the world from America um, and all that stuff. And so to introduce this kind of other thing, granted, they're doing it in a cosmic other reality. They're not actually dealing with like our governments or whatever. But I think, yeah, I think that's a natural evolution for Marvel to kind of with this quote unquote villainous character kind of circle back and actually like inspect who holds power and how they hold power and how they wield it. Um, so yeah, I, I, my, my hunch is that this plan that Loki has to take that, uh, that Tom, Tim Hiddlesworth Loki has to, <laughs> to, uh, you know, rule the, the timeline. Yes. That might be a sort of sinister grab for power, but it will ultimately end up being in service of like maybe freeing the multiverse from this tyrannical reign. I mean, my hope is that these two Lokis team up and not for yeah. like uh, purely selfish reasons, but for like ultimately altruistic reasons. Because that's my favorite Loki is like a scheming Loki that ultimately uh, is is working towards something I can root for. And like the um, so like t- to put it in MCU terms, right? Let's take Captain America Winter Soldier, right? In Captain America Winter Soldier, Steve Rogers starts the film thinking that he's working for a shield that is a force for good right um or to put it in <laughs> in terms of one of my favorite uh old, old abc shows uh alias right like you've got a character who thinks they're working for the cia and they find out that they're not but like if you see a care if, if steve rogers were to, to encounter someone killing shield agents he'd be like that person's the villain but if we then find out that that person killing shield agents knew that they were hydra that person's now the hero and and that's that's sort of what I would guess might be happening here. Yeah. I don't know, but I would guess. Um, and I think it was a really cool reveal. Like, yeah, the the fact that the figure is hooded this whole this whole time, I think, was a good tip off. We got some emails about this where people are like, I don't think that's Tom Hiddleston under that hood. Um, so like, you know, I think I think that was a good I'm glad that they did it kind of early rather than drag it out. But um I thought I found the whole Rock's cart um apocalypse coming showdown to be really effective what did you think? yeah no i agree and i think well i think for one thing it's fun that because loki can kind of inhabit other bodies we get to see a a, a vast array of different actors try their best tim hiddlesworth impression <laughs> or their best loki <laughs> you know impression. you know who did the best one i think is Wumi Masako because she's great Oh yeah. my god! When she tilted her head and smiled at him, and then Tom tilted and smiled back at her, I was like, "This is great stuff. Yeah. I love it." Okay, sorry, um, but yeah, that whole sequence was wonderful, and I think evocative in a way that, like, you know, it's imagining an apocalyptic event in America in like thirty years time, you know, from now, and a, um, and a cl- climate event, yeah, right? like something yeah. that is like all too credible, you know. Mm-hmm. And I like the blunt way that's just sort of introduced. It's like you're fine now, but like in three decades, we're pretty fucked, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. I thought that was sort of grim and I think really dark for the Marvel, which can get dark, but like the the thing where they're like, what are they? They're going to be dead in a few hours. Like, you know, the, the, you know, he's like, but they don't know that. Like, just, you know, yeah. be nice or whatever. Like, I think that's so it, it, it really was an effective, quick way. We've seen it elsewhere on the show so far to communicate that sort of above it all kind of like not so concerned with like single human lives that, that this tv you know the tva kind of hovers way above that and and has to think on a much grander scale or thinks it does um 
and and seeing that sort of like, well, no, we'll give them their few hours and, you know, but we're not going to do anything else to intervene in this. You know, this is happening. Right. Right. Um, I, I think it was it was it was chilling in, in, in I think, a really effective way. Something that I um that I think is really interesting, um, speaking of Mobius, who who does interject to that moment and say, like, okay, like show show them a little compassion. They right. don't they don't know that, you know. Um, are all the ways in which Mobius and Loki are positioned as similar in this episode, Mobius sort of like keeps calling out and and you know, this is something that Hiddleston um said in his interview with us last week, this idea that like they're much more similar than maybe either might realize right but um you know mobius keeps saying like he 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 was talking about like the chaos that he emerged from and that the tva was his glorious purpose and i don't know there was just like a couple different things that i just thought was really interesting them trying to draw this parallel and i'm curious like what you think of these two i mean you mentioned like liking just them sitting down and watching uh loki destroy mobius's lunch like what like what do you make of the way in which these two characters are sort of bouncing off each other. Does it feel paternal? Does it feel like classic foil? Like, what is it? What does it feel like to you? Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I said like last week, like kind of buddy cop, but you know that mm-hmm. kind of dynamic. Mm-hmm. But you know, maybe Mobius is also a Loki. I don't know. Um, you know, or maybe Mobius is the t- is one of these three time pe- masters that like, but doesn't maybe doesn't know it or it does and is hiding it. I don't. You know, I think there's definitely something more at play there. I mm-hmm. guess the question is whether Mobius turns into a, a foe of Loki's or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but the dynamic is interesting, and I think it's the writing has been, you know, all the talk about the the grand purpose and the, the how to hide in an apocalyptic event, all this kind of like, what is it? Astrophysics, metaphysics, all this kind of dense <laughs> yeah. philosophical existential talk um, that feels pretty like, erudite like it, it it feels elevated um and there are plenty of marvel things that are cleverly written but i think this is just it, it's fun having these characters just kind of bandy about with these like huge concepts and really to think about existence and i think part of that is owed to the fact that like this is one of the rare marvel things i can think of where i don't think either of these two main characters are human um in it in in how we think of that mm. you know and so we're seeing yeah. the sort of like the way that these other entities think about, um, you know, common things, mortality and what is, why am I here? You know, all that stuff, but they're thinking about them in much different terms. And I, and I love the way that um, they are, they are given voice uh, in, in the writing. I think it's, 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 it's engaging and it feels a bit, um, yeah, it feels very high minded in a way that uh, I, I'm, I wasn't expecting. Right. I think that was something that Waldron said to me is like in his pitch, he was like, why, why can't this be like the greatest TV show there ever was? <laughs> like, he was just sort of like, I, I think he was and what he meant by that is like, uh, there have been great comic book shows, but like, why are we, why are we sort of res- restricting ourselves to the idea of like this being a comic book show when we could think about this being like on the level of a madman or something like that, which I think, uh, you know, which he, he shouts out at his favorite show. But I think that like, one division at its finest w- was also on that level, you know what I mean? And I think that that is, and I'm really not knocking, you know, and, and Watchmen certainly, right? But like, I'm I'm certainly not knocking a lot of other comic shows because I have a lot of love for comic book shows. Um, Legion, when it was coherent, was phenomenal. But like, um, 
but yeah, this elevated, let's just sit in a room and talk. And and, and to that point, like to, to try to understand who Mobius is, um, as I continue to try to do, uh, the, the relationship that we actually explore a lot or a bit in this episode is his um, relationship to Gugum Batara's character, uh, Ravana. Like he's got these couple scenes in her office where um, a lot of history is implied, this sort of like joking jealousy of other um, time agents who work for her, like uh, this is this very warm Owen Wilson-y familiarity. Like, what what did you what did you make of their interaction? I, I like it. I mean, they're you know it's fun to watch them act together, but also you know uh, the way that they're gradually introducing us to a sort of hierarchy or organizational structure within the TVA about like who you know reports to who and and how this all relates to these, you know, space lizards that we haven't met yet and maybe never will, I don't know. Right. Um it's fun. I I think, you know, it's been done many times before, but but this kind these kind of peeks into uh an otherworldly bureaucracy uh is is fun. And I and I think that they're um I, I don't think you cast Gugu Mbatha-Ra, who is a big star in her own right, without, you know, having her have something more to do going forward. And mm-hmm. clearly they're setting the stage for that with these kind of conversations. Something that I think uh, is really interesting is uh, sort of a further expansion on this idea of like who Loki is and what Loki wants. Um, and this relates to this thing that Michael Waldron had said to me about thinking when he was writing Loki, he was thinking a lot about Steve Jobs, which I, I didn't really fully get at the time. But this is a longer quote that he gave uh, GQ. He said, uh, I love the Danny Boyle, Steve Jobs movie. There's a bit in there that Aaron Sorkin pulled from the Walter Isaacson, Steve Jobs biography, just talking about how Steve Jobs was adopted and how people who are adopted are out of control at the most important moment of their lives. And that movie is about how Steve Jobs is so obsessive about end-to-end control over all this technology. I drew a really interesting parallel between Loki and Steve Jobs, the desire to rule. I know best. I want to rule. I want to be in control as an adult because I was, in fact, so out of control as a young frost giant baby. Um, I was wondering what you think of that of that interpretation of 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 Loki and Steve Jobs. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know how uh, people who were adopted would necessarily feel about some of that verbiage. Um, sure. But um, yeah, I think I think that that's long been a part of Loki's characterization is that he has felt both not in sync with his family, but also because of that intensely invested in climbing the ladder that the family is, you know, sort of governed by and that they govern, you know, um, I'm going to succeed in this family that I feel like a kind of an outsider in by becoming the most insidery insider, but, you know, by like mm-hmm, winning the, mm-hmm. this game. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that in a more, you know, sort of elusive sense, that was Steve Jobs, you know, as a kind of outsider in this industry and becoming, you know, the the sort of not just the the leading top earner, top seller kind of thing, but also really change the way that people think about that technology as it exists in like our everyday life in terms of ergonomics and aesthetics and, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, so I think that, yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, I kind of see, this is no slight to the dearly departed, but I, I kind of see Loki as less of a uh, totalizing megalomaniacal force than Steve Jobs was, at least in what I understand of Steve Jobs. Um, that said, Loki has like killed people. So, um, but that's all relative in terms of the Marvel universe. 
<laughs> well, to that end, I want to I want to read this uh, email that we got from uh, Eric, uh, who wrote in about sort of this idea of like Will Lo- Loki, who's who's ever the foil to Thor, like realize he's not the main character before the series is through. And that that this is what Eric writes. Mobius says, and he says, "Forgive me, I know I'm butchering the quotes." You were meant to cause pain and suffering and chaos. What's more, you were meant to cause others to be the best versions of himself. And then he, they show the Avengers. This is in episode one. And on the surface, this totally fits. The timekeepers need the Avengers to become the heroes that would do the thing. Trouble is, that's what Loki has believed his entire life. He's always been the foil for Thor. He's always meant to make Thor into a better man. He's always been the tool in Asgard. And he's raged against that narrative his entire life. Just like that, Mobius, the guy who so correctly validated him. I'm smart. I know you are told him that his worst fears are correct. He's a means, not an end. I think that's going to be key to this story. Loki's burden with glorious purpose to be a ruler and an end. And he's just been told that he's a tool and a means for other heroes, not a hero himself. What's he going to do next? Like, is Loki going to sacrifice himself to a, a larger purpose? I guess is my, is my yes and to Eric, like, which is sort of what he did in Infinity War. But I don't know. I like, what was your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, there's something sort of like, I'm probably mislabeling this, but sort of like Calvinist about like this, like, you were born to either ascend to heaven or not. Like there is, you, you know, mm-hmm. from like you, this is this is who you are from the get go, there can be little to be done to to earn, you know, whatever aspirations you have. Um, it's all sort of baked in. Um, and I think that that assessment from Mobius, while it does, you know, recontextualize Loki you know, as he thinks of himself and as we think of him in the, you know, from the audience perspective, um, it also does kind of hint at a perhaps fanatical belief system inherent at the TVA, you know, about, you know, a sort of divine plan or um, a a sort of innate goodness or worth and purpose. Um, You know, that, that, and that's that, that, that while it's just kind of a casual sort of conversation, I mean, not casual, but like it, it's presented a bit offhandedly. I think it's sort of laying the groundwork for a really kind of extreme sort of worldview or universe view. Right. So that works perfectly with this interchange that Mobius and Ravana have where Mobius says of Loki, maybe he wants to make it, mix it up. Maybe you get tired of playing the same part. Is that possible that he can change? And she says, not unless the timekeepers decree it. Right. And that's exactly, it's determinism. It's like very chilling. It's this question of free will and like, what's at play here? And this idea, like as soon as Loki finds out that there are these timekeepers playing playing marbles with these infinity stones and determining free will, like that's what he wants to, that's what he wants to topple, right? Right. Because he's he's chaos. And anyone telling him he has to be this thing that he's always been um, is is not something he's going to be able to accept um, at all. So. Yeah. And like that does have like, I don't know that the show is really straining to, to make these connections, but yeah, there are connections in the real world to the class system in the UK or the caste system in India that was really rigidly reinforced by the British Raj or like the way we look at class and race in America. Like, you know, th- this, this sense of, of um, yeah, a few people can transcend their quote unquote station, but you know, people pretty much have their path set out before them and because of, you know, the accident of their birth or whatever. Um, and, you know, I think in in a lot of ways, like certain, you know, emerging political ideologies in America, let's say, 
are challenging that and saying like, no, there, there, there shouldn't just be this one course for the sort of divinely ordained and there shouldn't, you know, and then everyone else has to like fight over the scraps or, you know, one can take a swerve into a different sort of identity or whatever. And, and yeah, so I think that like, while Loki may be chaos and that's a scary word, um, because there is a, a benefit to order in some senses, like he is in that process also challenging a hegemony that, um, a lot of people, and in this case, extra dimensional entities kind of suffer under. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think I think it's not just uh, your station, but also your nature. Your nature, right. we have determined who you are, essentially. And Loki, of course, is going to buck against that. And that that reminds me of, of this other reference that I want to bring up that like, director Kate Heron um, had said in an interview, she was like, uh, seven uh, the David Fincher film with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. She's like, Seven was a, a film that we thought a bit about. And there's a direct reference in this episode when they're doing their research uh, in the library. This this Bach piece comes on over the soundtrack. And that's the same Bach piece that's playing when Morgan Freeman's doing the re- mm-hmm. the research in the library in Seven. And um, uh, and so thinking about that, like putting putting Loki in the, in the Brad Pitt slot, if we will, um, and thinking of like the way that that film ends, spoiler, spoilers for seven, is Kevin Spacey's character. Sorry to invoke Kevin's name, but Kevin Spacey's character, you know, feeling like he knows exactly who Brad Pitt's character is and how he's going to react to something, and predicting that out, and then being right and the yeah. tragedy of that. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's this idea of like who you are at your nature is wrath, and I know that I'm going to exploit that. I mean, that's. You know, that's an interesting thought to overlay on something like Loki, you know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And I think it is one of the, you know, it's an interesting kind of dovetailing between uh, the sort of more humanist existential stuff we're talking about and the sort of uh, dichotomies, paradoxes of time travel narratives, which is like, but wait, if this is always going to happen, what is doing this then? And how does that change things? Can it change it? Like, like I think that time travel stuff is a really interesting device to use to talk about these bigger social questions that really do come to bear on our world. I did not mean to get so in, like philosophical, but like but the show, <laughs> this I show, think does, yeah, you know? the show invites it absolutely, absolutely. Um, I want to hit a few uh, quick things before we we head into the interview. Um, just to know that some folks think they saw Pe- Peggy Carter in the background is like being pulled in as one of the time criminals and they were like, uh, is that them trying to address the Steve Rogers thing? Like hmm. have put Peggy Carter on, on the stand. I feel like I, I looked at the screenshot of that woman. I do think that woman was intentionally styled to look like Peggy Carter, but I think that that background might be all we get. Like that would just be like a sort of, let's put someone who at least looks like Peggy Carter in the background. It could be Peggy Carter if we decide it is, but I don't think the show's going to directly engage in that. Well, I think is also that, yeah. the, Maybe the reason that some people thought that is that Haley Atwell is a time criminal. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in yeah. real life, yeah, 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 so, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's been stealing kablooey candy <laughs> out of every <laughs> every yeah. rocks card she can find. Okay. Um, Megan wrote in and asked what the Tesseract can do. Like, can it can it jump you through time? Um, no, it can take you through dimensions, but through space. Um, but and and mere mortals cannot handle it. 
but it is not a, a time jumpy thing necessarily. So I think when he drops in the Gobi Desert, I guess I should have rechecked the time, but I think it's just like he leaves the Battle of New York and drops in the Gobi Desert, but it's the same time right. that he does that. Uh, then again, the Red Skull like uh, transported himself to a different planet entirely via the Tesseract. So, you know, you never know. Um, and then Damien wrote in this question, speaking of like existential questions, Okay, you know new vision at the end of of WandaVision, all 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 white vision, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Richard. Mm -hmm. Damien wrote in and asked, "Do you think new vision would make it through the robot detector?" Because okay, in the robot detector in episode one, the question was, "Do you have what people would consider a soul?" And old vision had the soul stone. New vision doesn't. So I guess this is a very like Blade Runner to Android's dream of electric sheet moment. Like, do you think New Vision would make it through the robot detector? Um, I don't know, but maybe the bigger question is why is there a robot detector and why are they so hung up on this idea of a soul? See, we're in, there's another kind of religious kind of introduction yeah. there. Yeah. Another clue to like the TVA maybe being a sort of fanatical <laughs> group well, and, of, you know, yeah. something. And, and the question that um, Loki has asked a couple times of Mobius is like, so you were just created right. by the TVA, right? Like the TVA isn't staffed by humans. They're staffed by these entities that, yes, look humanoid, but they were created by the timekeepers. What are they? Are they robots? And if they are robots, I, mean, I, don't, I don't love the idea that they're robots, but like androids can be very sophisticated. So like, whatever. Like, let's say they're androids or whatever. Does that make... Lady Loki killing them feel less of a crime that now we're like really into sci-fi territory uh, there. But, you know, it, it's just uh, I have questions. Yeah. Why is there a robot detector? Why is that question of like being a robot and not knowing it? Is Mobius a robot and not know it? Like, I don't know. I don't know. And, don't and in, in the not knowing, is that a soul in itself? Is it that sort of mm -hmm. consciousness? You know, the consciousness yeah. to not know something about yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, Sasha Lane's character seems pretty scared yeah. yes yeah you know? c20 we should mention that right so that like lady loki kidnaps c20 uh and it seems seemingly interrogates her uh sasha lane's character and then uh finds out where to find the timekeepers so perhaps you know when she says at the end of the episode this isn't about you great line to say to loki right this isn't about you yeah uh and then she hops into a time door and he follows her makes makes chase uh, and in theory, this is about her taking down the timekeepers. I don't know. It seems that that's what she wants going after C20. Like, what do, what do you what do you make of this, of her bombing the sacred timeline and, and everything else? What do you think, Richard? Well, I guess the question is, is the chaos the, 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 the end goal? Or mm -hmm. does the chaos create an opportunity for something specific? You know, Correct. Um, a distraction, a distraction of some yeah. kind, or maybe there's an unlocking of something. Maybe there is another timeline that can be born of that chaos that like where something crucial happens or becomes available or, you know, um, I don't know. But it's a, it's a very shivery sort of setup. And I, I like the, you know, where you see the little red lines, then all of a sudden going really, you know, mm -hmm. willy nilly all over that that mm -hmm. time map or whatever it is. Um yeah, I mean, I'm I'm intrigued. I I I don't know what to expect going forward, but um, the way the show is playing with uh it, all of its possibility is thus far, I think, uh, pretty pretty engaging. 
something we should say before we we wrap up uh is um uh, I, I don't think this is a spoiler because i genuinely don't know the answer so <laughs> i think i'm allowed to say it uh sofia di martino was a big question mark on the cast list we didn't know who she was playing now we know we should note that Richard E. Grant and Jack Veal, uh, Richard E. Grant being an older gentleman, Jack Veal being a young man, uh, are also mystery question marks on the cast list. And if I were a betting man, I would say Richie Grant definitely playing a Loki. And I would say Jack Veal might also be playing a character known as Kid Loki. So um, I feel like we've got more Loki variants uh, left to see in the show. What happens if two of the Lokis kiss each other? I mean, time cop rules. I think they yeah. both blink out of existence. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll have to see, I guess. Uh, so please watch the film Time Cop and um, and report back. And anything else you want to mention about episode two, Richard? Oh, just briefly, we mentioned Sasha Lane. If people are wondering who that is, go and watch the wonderful Andrea Arnold film American Honey, where she made her debut. It's a really beautiful film. I know that's, yeah. a t- that's not related to anything, but. No, I was excited to see her turn up and I hope she has more to do here. Um, she's a, you know, she's, she got that fun little like, holding out for a hero fight scene and then yeah. got to sort of degrade from there. Um, all right. So let us go to our conversation with Amal El-Motar. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's so nice to talk to you. Hello. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, I was I was telling you before we started recording that, you know, the, the way this all came together is one of our listeners, uh, Ruth Ann, wrote in glowingly about your book, was talking about how... Um, a lot of the terminology that she saw in the first episode of Loki reminded her of your book. Uh, it's a short book. It's a, it's technically a novella, right? So yeah. I, I picked it up and I read it in a day and then a, a kind mutual flagged you on Twitter that I was talking about your book and the rest is history. And you're here to talk to me about this. So I just thought it would be a really good opportunity to talk about the art, the difficulty of crafting time travel narratives and stuff like that. And I'm talking to you over zoom and I see little TARDIS lights behind <laughs> you. So I know that you're like a true oh, yeah. sci-fi uh, pop culture nerd friend. Uh, so yeah, so let's start, let's start with at the very, very beginning when you, when you decide to do this story, you've got a co-author, Max Gladstone. And so you decide to do this, this story at what point do you decide it was time travel? At what point do you decide it's multiverse? And how do you go about constructing those realities? Max and I became super good friends super quickly over the course of about a year, mostly through writing each other physical letters by hand. I was living in Glasgow at the time, so I wrote a letter to him and his wife, Steph, saying it was so lovely to meet you both. Um, And we just kind of started up a correspondence in the wake of that. Um, and so for literally about a year, we, we fell into this practice of writing each other increasingly extra letters in the sense of <laughs> extra in the sense of like when we started this, you know, we just wrote like with ballpoint pens. Well, I certainly like wrote with like a ballpoint pen on some printer paper and shoved it into whatever envelope I had to hand and put it in the post. And then then we started getting really like fancy about it. And I started putting like wax seals on it and getting like good paper and Max wrote with fountain pens and like the letters became these increasingly pretty artifacts and then the kind of parameters of the project really came out of our own time constraints in a way so um, we were both very busy people and we tried to figure out okay what can we write together probably not a novel that's probably too much Um, but maybe we could each write half a novella that seems like a feasible length one thing that we'd often noticed when writing each other letters by hand 
was that letters were a kind of time travel, that whenever you sit down to write a physical letter to someone, the delay between the person writing it and the person receiving it means that when you sit down to write a letter, you're trying to anticipate the person who's going to receive it. You know, you find yourself thinking, where will they be in 10 days time? Um, I'm in Canada and Max is in the, the States. So 10 days roughly <laughs> was what we could expect. And so there's a really, there's a, a very real sense in which when you sit down to write the letter, you're inventing the person who's going to receive it. That's like their time slip self. And when they receive your letter, they're receiving a past self of you that's kind of been trapped in amber, you know, in this letter um, and getting a sort of time capsule of who you were at the moment that you wrote the letter. And we thought that that was a really intimate and kind of devastating dynamic to potentially play with in a story. And we thought, why don't we make this literal? Um, why don't we have literal time travelers who have all of time and space and infinite technology at their disposal and what kind of letters would they write each other? And, uh, and then we, we kind of went from there. We decided on multiverse in particular, of course, like, you know, not, without wanting to be spoilery, uh, it's sort of multi, it's definitely multiverse, but it's also sort of time loop um, in terms of different time travel kinds of stories. But we wanted the multiverse for a really specific reason. Uh, well, a few really specific reasons. One, we didn't want a plot forward story. Usually when you want a plotty story that is time travel, you do actually want the kind of ins and outs of grandfather paradoxes, stable time loops, that sort of thing. Um, we were really more interested in multiplicity. We were interested in lots and lots and lots of versions of worlds. Um, we also, when we sat down to write this, we, we wrote it very quickly. We wrote most of it over about a 10 day period at a writing retreat. And we were literally <laughs> sitting across from each other in a gazebo at the time with no internet at our disposal. So we weren't gonna do a ton of research for this. And so there was a certain pragmatism to just being like, we don't know for sure whether they were using paper money at this point in time in the 19th century, but perhaps in a different version of it. Mm, and right, we could right. just get away. We were like, we, we were like bandits, you know, throughout <laughs> this, just cheating constantly um in order to make this project work there are uh words you use in here in your book that um you know is sort of what flagged our listener Ruth Ann to email me um that they used in the Loki pilot when they're sort of putting together some of the ideas of how time travel works for the TVA right and mm -hmm. um words like pruning like pruning a timeline something like that the idea of variance you've got variance in your in your story I forget was it like Socrates or something you know what I mean it's just sort of like oh, which yeah. you know which version did you know sort of thing um so Socrates and Genghis Khan it's like I wonder if we knew any of the same one yeah exactly exactly um so uh, you know I was just wondering um I guess I want to ask you like how do you feel like they laid everything out in the Loki as as an as a crafter yourself of multiverses and time travel how is it laid out in the pilot for you I am so so excited about this show and I loved <laughs> the pilot I loved the pilot so much I so here's the thing about time travel stuff, right? It is so easy to, um, you know, there's a bit in Looper where like, um, uh, what's his name? Older, anyway, older time traveler. Bruce, Bruce Willis. Thank you, Bruce Willis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Bruce Willis is talking to um, his younger self and he's like, you know, I could explain time travel, but we'll just be fucking around with bendy straws all day if we were to do that, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, 
And I think that a lot of time travel stuff kind of invent invites that kind of scrutiny. It's like, well, but paradox, well, whatever. And those conversations have like very rigid forms that people fall into. And I'm so not interested in that. I'm so much more interested in all the emotional content of time travel. I'm like, so the fact that I was devastated when, um, when Loki died at the beginning of Infinity War, I was like, I was almost furious enough to walk out of the theater. I was like, really? (laughs) Really? You're not even giving him the reversible death? He's going to like, for reals die? I'm not okay with this right now after Ragnarok, which was so wonderful for reconciling all of these different things. It was such a good arc. And then, um, so I was, I was trepidatious about the fact of the, you know, less enlightened Loki being the center of a show. So the mechanism of getting to show him his future, the mechanism of getting to show him what actually his progression was, like there was so much going on in that scene that I found so beautiful and so moving. And um, everything, everything about the aesthetic of the TVA, everything about their like super analog, chunky printout technology stuff delights me and is something that I also would love to see more of in, in time travel stories. Like the idea that, you know, the idea that with time travel, you're not going to like necessarily an aesthetically coherent universe. Like if you've got a whole bunch of time travelers, surely you're going to end up with people who are obsessed with one specific iteration of the nineties and like have, I don't know, the Fuji's all over their walls. And then someone else who's going to be like, nah, you know, this is, this is my version. And, And I love the eclecticism of that. And I like so much eclecticism is possible with time travel. So whenever someone reduces it to, but I need it to make sense in a coherent mm, A plus B way, um, feels like it leaves a lot on the table. And I don't feel like this show is leaving anything on the table so far. I, I feel like it's just really joyfully embracing that. So I love what it's doing so far. Um, I love the little, God, I love the animated parts, <laughs> like the little the little animated visualizations yeah. which feel so necessary in a time travel story. Um, and I absolutely did like look at it and go like time war a little bit, you know, except that there is this in like, I mean, they are pruning timelines, but they're keeping the, the sense in time war is that you've got these two warring futures that right. are unstable and that are convinced that only one of them can exist. And so they send time traveling operatives into up thread as they call it like into the past where things are more stable right um in order to make them um you know to to kind of uh, do enemy action to each other basically and try to eliminate one of them from the future i love that well and i and i completely agree with you that like as long as it's emotionally it feels emotionally sound um the the ins and outs the the various niggling details of like a, a timeline story don't bother me like Mm. i remember when endgame came out you know and they were talking about how the avengers did time travel in that and a bunch of people were trying to figure it out i was like oh i don't really care it was just emotionally satisfying and made enough logical sense that i'm fine with it but i do i will say keep getting stuck on steve rogers because that whole thing doesn't make emotional sense to me and i think that's why i keep coming back to it you just made a yeah. huge gesture over zoom so i just want to hear like your steve <laughs> Ro- your steve rogers time loop thoughts <laughs> I, it's one of those things where you know you want something and then it gets given to you and you're like but that's not how I wanted it though like 
I've been rooting for Peggy and Steve from the first Captain America film. Like I, I loved them together. It was an enormous tragedy. It was so upsetting. And um, and then they did Agent Carter, and I was delighted with Agent Carter. And I loved like the 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 fact that in Agent Carter, Steve is a kind of like avatar almost. You know, he is like he's not there, but he's something aspirational. He's something Peggy remembers. He's like um you know a, a precious remembered self kind of thing and then like even the moment in game where he like sees her in the past you know um is so moving because that distance is still there it is weird to have lots of questions raised by him suddenly going back like so wait I mean, like, there are ways, I think, to make it work. The, the emotion part of it that doesn't work for me is, wait, if Steve Rogers went into the past, like, what was he doing? I don't know. Like, was he just secretly not being Captain America for most of his life? Was he trying secretly to be good in the... I mean, I presume he was because he's Steve Rogers. But the idea of him... I don't know. Like, it's hard to put my finger on why it, it unsatisfies me so much. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. This is probably something I'm going to be stuck on forever. So I apologize (laughs) for like drawing you down into my Steve Rogers soup. One thing about multiverse stuff that I also think is valuable and interesting. And I'm super curious to see what the TVA does, like how the TVA is going to work, whether the TVA are actually going to be secretly baddies or not. Like, are they, are they, you know, are they tireless bureaucrats trying to keep the world together or are they just time cops? Like, I am curious as to what they're going to do, because one of the appeals to Max and me of the multiverse was that it recognizes the fact that we are constantly actually changing the past. Like, we are constantly, for real, actually, by virtue of studying history, unearthing buried narratives, um, you know, recognizing queer history finding that women, you know, did a lot of stuff that they didn't get credit for, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, By finding it, we do change the past because we change how we talk about the past. We do that. So I feel like by having a multiverse, you recognize that we had a narrative and we learned something else and that narrative branched off and changed. And now we have to actually recognize that lots of things were true at the same time. And that a narrative about history kind of forces you to only see some things as true uh, at the expense of others. And that looking at history and studying history and teaching history is a kind of constant struggle, not only over the past, but obviously over the future. You know, what are you going to teach your children about the past and how is that going to inform the way that they move through their lives and through the future? So when you have a multiverse, you recognize that like there are people are full of multitude, people contain multitudes, they um, will change the world in lots of ways. They themselves are the consequence of so many variables that can't be tracked. So if the TVA is actually like, you know, pruning one true timeline, that is really sinister to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, you know, the, the, the warring factions in Time War are not laudable. <laughs> they are like they are extreme they are, they are two imperial powers essentially who are right. at war with each other um and and so whenever anyone tries to make only one of anything i find it very sinister and very sus and so i'm really curious 
<laughs> to see yeah. um, where the TVA lands in that. Because I haven't actually read those comics. I'm not sure what argument the comic makes, um, but yeah. Yeah, it's something that we'll talk about elsewhere in this episode, but like just the idea of like whoever is so invested in this one timeline, like the excuse in the in the animated sort of explainer is that it will de- descend into chaos or madness but mm. you know my suspicion is that someone is invested in one certain outcome right and uh-huh. whether that outcome is altruistic like beating thanos at the end of endgame and and dr strange saying there's only one version you know only one way right. that this plays out right or if it's a little bit more messy and personal and whether it's about power or emotion or whatever it is like yeah, that's something, something to keep an eye on, right? I love that we've had, like, hints. Of, I mean, so obviously there is, if you follow, like, MCU production stuff, and I don't know how, like, spoilery things get on this. Try podcast, it, and but... I'll tr- and I'll prune okay. it if I don't like it. You prune it! See? Prune <laughs> yeah. the one true timeline yeah. um, of this podcast. I mean, so obviously we know that there's going to be Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. We know mm-hmm. that WandaVision ends with, like, her kind of, you know, paging through a sort of multiverse looking for her kids. You know, there's a whole, there's a sense in which the people who have the power to contest what looks like the TVA are kind of laying the the ground for that. And if Loki is at the heart of that, I'm super curious. I also have a called shot about about Loki. (laughs) Tell me, tell me. Uh, So, I mean, I keep going, what is the point of obscuring bad Loki's face, Mm. you know, unless it's played by someone else and what is the kind of main axis along which <gasps> reveals tend to happen it's going to be lady loki right it's got to be it's got to be a lady version of loki who is bad loki and i am extremely here for that and it's like so here for that and i would be very disappointed if it's not the case but i'm sure i'll also be delighted by whatever it is yeah something that's interesting by that possibility to me is this idea that like you know i was speaking to the head writer michael waldron about you know, he he was talking about the various like love stories that he feels like goes through this. And and he wasn't speaking sort of like very literally about, um, you know, a, a typical romance, but maybe a love story like, you know, perhaps one that might grow between Mobius and Loki as like a love story of colleagues or mentors or yeah. father figures or whatever. But if we have a Lady Loki and we have a Loki, like, and if they're chasing each other through time, I, and then I read your book and I just got really excited <laughs> about this idea of like a cat and mouse, like, you know, and it, I don't mean to like uh, unqueer Loki. Like I know that Loki is canonically queer, but like, I just, I like the idea um, because you've got those TARDIS light, lights behind you, yeah. like a very sort of like river song kind of like, you know, hopping through time, mischief, like two gods of mischief like cat and mousing each other through time that 100%. sounds incredible to me and i don't know that that's what they're gonna do but it would i mean really loki's fun. a shapeshifter is the other thing right yeah. like he he is like canonically <laughs> i think one of the myths about loki involve him turning into a horse to like sire blesnir I, I might have that wrong listen um, if zeus could do it loki could yeah do it. Exactly. Yeah. Like there's the shapeshifty aspect of Loki. We always see this Loki in this one form. I love the idea that there is another Loki that favors like a different kind of baseline default form. Like I think mm-hmm. the general queerness of Loki is a gender queerness as well, right? Um, but I also love that. I love the idea of just I mean, specifically there's an interesting thing, especially because of Doctor Who, that I find keeps happening. I feel like big changes to the main character tend to be foregrounded in the master like so before we got B 
female doctor who we got female master in in missy right Mm -hmm. and i like the idea that we are getting that we might get female loki before we get female thor um and as a kind of like oh interesting yeah yeah yeah, there's a kind of like on-ramping i think that happens for um for i don't know people who are less into uh gender fucky stuff than i am (laughs) but um where it's like okay well you know try it out in this character who maybe isn't the main focus of the story do you like it you like it don't you yes now we're gonna do the rest of it um so i don't know but i like i said i could totally be wrong about this but i super love that idea i just and like yeah who would attract loki more than another Loki. Do you know exactly. what I mean? Like, I just kind of like, I kind of love the idea of Loki falling in love with himself. I'm not sure that that's yes. going to happen, but that's kind of something that I would love. So <laughs> I want to ask you about, um, I know that you, you just uh, done your first comic book. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about that experience. And what- so I wrote an issue of Tricksters for Boom Studios, um, Jim Henson's Storyteller series, uh, which is a lot of like nested <laughs> things, but Basically, there was a TV show called The Storyteller. Um, Iconic. Which I loved. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, yes. It was so beautiful and good. And they approached me to ask if I would write one for their trickster series. So they've been um, doing lots of different series focused on different mythological creatures. And uh, so they've got like a giant's book. They've got a witch's book and stuff. So they wanted to do a trickster's book. Um, and they asked me to uh, to write for it. So I wrote um, a script for Renard the Fox, who is... Uh, a trickster out of um, medieval Western European um, story traditions and stuff and uh, uh, and had a, a blast doing it. I love that you wrote a trickster comic and mm. a uh, time war narrative. Uh, and now you've got a show in Loki that it seems crafted specifically for you. So that's oh, yeah. really exciting. I feel very, <laughs> very catered to <laughs> our media landscape right now. So uh, folks definitely know where to find this is how you lose time or at all at all. Uh, you know, go shop lo- at your local bookstore would be my pitch yeah. for folks. Um, but uh, where can they find you and, and anything else that you might be working For my sins, I am often on Twitter uh, at Tithenai, uh, which is T-I-T-H-E-N-A-I. I also have a website, um, amalalmohtar.com. I've got a newsletter you can sign up for there. Um, but the thing that I'm most excited about right now is that I, uh, th- this has been a really interesting year so far and that I've been doing a lot of work for the first time so I wrote a comic for the first time um I wrote for um for uh I wrote some ephemera for a game a like really beautiful game called Field Guide to Memory uh by Jian Shim and Xing Yin Kor um and I wrote one third of a play uh which is premiering uh on June 17th um it's premiering in a super weird way uh, at the Ottawa Fringe Festival, which is virtual this year. Uh, it's called Dressed as People, and its theme is Uncanny Abduction. Um, and my contribution was a scary fairy story, so fairy abductions and someone wanting to get her, um, someone very dear to her back. Um, but so you can find it at the Ottawa Fringe Festival's website. Tickets are like 15 bucks. It is honestly... I cannot stress enough how worth it I personally feel it is. I'm obviously extremely biased, but um, it runs for 10 days. Uh, When you buy a ticket, it gives you on-demand viewing access. And yeah. Excellent. Well, uh, you know that I will be waiting eagerly for that. Um, And and thank you so much for the chat. I I really appreciate it. So nice to meet you. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to meet you. And this has been so much fun. Yeah. 
Hello and welcome to the final uh, segment. <laughs> Still watching Loki episode two. Um, you will just have heard my conversation with uh, Amal, and I just want to give her credit. Uh, when she predicted that the Loki variant uh, was Lady Loki, I just want to point out that she had not seen episode two yet. So when she did her shot call there, that was a true shot call. Um, but now, of course, we or, all know. Or? Or does Amal have secret keys to different... <laughs> doorways in time and has she already seen the full season of loki (laughs) and she's just unable to tell us because we can't handle it just yet is she a time criminal i don't know we'll we'll find out uh as the season progresses um i'm excited to read that book though uh i'm really happy that uh she spoke to you and that's on my radar now yeah i put it i put it on anthony's to read list so here we go um all right so we um we got a ton of emails from folks like literally literally hundreds uh, and I read them all and we sort of combed through. We we addressed a couple of them in the earlier section with Richard, but a lot of them are saved for this section because a lot of them are kind of granular or in response to things that Anthony and I talked about. So we're going to be addressing some of your emails. We've got some. I've got another theory. Are you excited? Um, but let's start. Let's start with this heavy keys question that we had that we got yes. so many responses to. Um some were theoretical, some, uh, but but a lot of them were based on this uh, thing that's true, which is that, um, and I believe this section here that was sent in by Victoria came from an email, uh, an interview that was in The Verge, um, and this is uh, Tom Hiddleston talking, and he said, "Owen came in and just asked me lots of questions about my experience. I remember he said, Tom, why do you love playing Loki?" And I found myself saying, well, he's just got all this range. He can play the lighthearted keys, but he can also play the heavy keys in the." Um, I always get this wrong. Bass, bass, bass clef. Wow. What? Uh, I'm not a music major. Okay. And somehow the character contains both. And he loved the way of thinking about that. He said, I think I might say that in the show. And so it was really his very intelligent question that led us somewhere else in the story. So apparently this is like an Owen Wilson additive to say, I can play the heavy keys. Right? Yeah. However, <laughs> Anthony Bresdikin, why do you think Owen Wilson was interrogating Tom Hiddleston about what it was like to play Loki? Mm, well... <laughs> I mean, uh, if Mobius, as we theorized last week, may be a secret Loki himself, that might be a factor, right? And the whole, again, this whole notion of the Mobius strip is uh, an object that appears to have two sides, but really is has just one side. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe, 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 we, maybe he's going to be showing us uh, his trickster side. I will say when I saw that, and and there's a number of. Um, mentions in this episode where Mobius and Loki are compared, right? Like when Loki says in episode two, when he says, when he says the whole thing about where a wolf's ears are, wolf's teeth are near, he says it's in his guardian phrase. That's an actual sort of Norse Viking phrase um, that they used here. And Mobius says, my ears are sharp too. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the, when he talks about his glorious purpose and emerging from chaos and stuff like that, like, I, I don't know. I just, I think, or, or actually another one that I wrote down is when, when they're in the rocks cart, uh, you know, the, the abandoned supermart rocks cart. And there's this guy there looking at the azaleas and, uh, B15 is like, could that be you? And Loki goes, I would have worn a suit. And I was like, Mobius wears a suit. That's interesting. Anyway, just, we're going to keep mm. talking about this, but I well, think, there was an, oh, yeah, go ahead. There was another scene, if I could add to that, uh, mm, yeah. where, where Mobius is in Ravona's office mm-hmm. and 
she's talking about having other agents and he says, yeah, but I'm your favorite, right? That like directly mirrors what Loki is saying about these rival Lokis, these other variants out there, but Mm -hmm. I'm the best one, right? I'm the Mm -hmm. superior one. So I thought that was just a little bit of a, maybe a subtle callback, a little hint of the, uh, I have to be the number one. Yeah. And also in that scene, uh, doesn't he say like, Oh yeah, yeah. Ravana says this Loki is insubordinate, stubborn, and unpredictable. And she says, "Sounds like someone I know." Looking at Mobius, and then he says, "Sounds like someone I know." Looking at her, um, but uh, I just, I just thought that was an interesting moment too. Pressing pause on on this theorizing, which if you missed last week, this idea that I had that maybe Mobius is another Loki, which we'll get a little bit more into, but to re- to theorize responsibly this time around. I want to say Mm -hmm. that I'm also watching this show very much with a reading that Mobius is Mobius because I don't want to be like too caught up in wondering who else Mobius might be and miss a really interesting story about these two different personalities finding mirrors in each other. Do you know what I mean? And so I think for me in order, you know, and I I would encourage other people as I watch the show it's important to sort of hold all of those possibilities at once so that you don't miss the other, another story that they might be telling. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You can build up a wall of theories around yourself sometimes that uh, obscure the joy of the story that's just being told to you. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Do you want to, we had a couple people uh, email us about secret wars. Do you want to talk about secret wars, the comic book event at all? Secret wars. Yes. that was one of the things there are a number of really important like serial storylines in Marvel comics that cross over across many different character books. And so it was one of those where you had to kind of piece everything together, um, started out in the, in the eighties and, uh, you know, there, it was a way of pitting heroes against each other and villains against each other. Um, like multiverse versions of, right? So you could have like Cap versus Cap or something like yeah, that. Right? The, yeah. Like the nearest corollary I can think of, it's not an exact match, um, was the DC video game. Why am, why, gosh, it's, it's, uh, it's coming, it's coming to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a DC video game that allowed like Batman and Superman and everybody. It was like Mortal Kombat where, uh, um, Injustice. Mm. Why well, I couldn't think of that. <laughs> um, but, uh, where they are in sort of an arena and they battle against each other and, you know, you could have Superman versus Superman, Batman versus Superman and different iterations of those characters as well. Elseworld variation. Right. And so th- uh, that was a similar thing here. Um, but I think, uh, the, the later version of Secret Wars that, uh, was influential with this storyline and uh, that was when different realities, different dimensions were at war with each other. So not just individual characters, but different, uh, uh, I guess it's almost like competing books. It, again, to go back to DC, you know, they have different ranges of books for uh, uh, different age, you know, people of different ages. They're really kid-friendly books. They yeah. are really like mature books. Like uh, in, in the film universe, we have... Uh, uh, you know, Batfleck, we have uh, Christian Bale as Batman, we have Michael Keaton as Batman, like, 
Like, imagine if all of those those movies, those franchises went to war with each other. You know, we have crossover things, and we have Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse happening, where characters pop in and help each other or do battle with each other. But imagine really the timelines going against each other. And the other nearest Am I doing a good job here, Joe? I, I think, you're doing, like a, I think you're doing a pretty good job. And I think I think Into the Spider-Verse is a good touchstone for people who aren't even that familiar with comics. Like if if uh Spider Spider-Ham <laughs> and um you know all the and Penny and like all noir. the Yeah, Spider Noir and all of them were like battling each other. And I think the idea is like there can be only one a sort of Highlander thing, right? Like yeah. you you're fighting for your reality to survive, which is is part of what um Amal's book is about as well. And so I think this secret wars idea. And I think it was a, I believe, and I know people will email us still watching pot at gmail.com if I am wrong, but I believe it was a way to tidy up some continuity in the Marvel comics world. Are you right? talking about agents of shield? Well, I mean, <laughs> agents of shield. I don't know. It's like, so we got an email from Scott who said, uh, do you think that Phil Coulson's death and the review by, by Mobius right, writes out agents of shield from the MCU timeline? Since Mobius doesn't correct Loki when they talk about him dying, it seems to omit Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. from the MCU timelines. What do you think? And something that we know and you and I have talked about before was that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was not something that the MCU, the Feige-led MCU Marvel Studios really wanted. Like, basically, (laughs) Marvel TV, if you want to talk about battle planets and timelines, Marvel television and Marvel films were kind of at war with each other, a polite war, for a while until... Feige launched what's happening on Disney Plus right now. And, uh, you know, for a while, they were bringing characters over from, the you know, like Nick Fury or Lady Sif or whatever would pop up on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. But, like, really, eventually, I mean, you, wh- what did you bring up before in, in terms of, like, the way that they quash any connection between the two of them? I forget mm. what it was. It was like something, it was like Immortals or something. Whatever it was, it was just sort of like, the MC was just like, no, we. Oh, oh, oh! I remember what it was. It was you. You brought this up when they when they just brought down shields in Winter Soldier. Oh, in Winter Soldier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, guys! We have a hit new show, Agents <laughs> of Shield. Oh, really? Because our new movie just destroys Shield. Oh, right. Oh. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. they're at war with each other, and like the question is, uh, are they saying that was an a? Uh, is is this inclusion of Phil Coulson here? A sly nod to them treating that Agents of Shield as a branch timeline of of Phil surviving. I don't know. Can, so, in terms of Secret Wars, can I bring up another yeah. comp that I think I wish yeah, yeah. more people knew this one? There was a fabulous show called Counterpart. Uh, Amal, ooh, Amal brought that up. Tell tell I, me talk about Counterpart. Yeah. Oh, great. See, I have not. Amal Amal has not seen the. Uh, episode and she guessed something right and i have not yet heard the interview (laughs) even though it is airing it is on our podcast before this conversation joe just did it so i haven't had a chance to listen but counterpart was a series on amazon uh two seasons tragically ended abruptly uh but it starred jk simmons as this guy who's kind of like a uh west german diplomat you know from from the cold war it's set in the present day but he has this job where he has to go through and 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 really be just kind of a functionary who helps with diplomacy, but he's not really clear on what he's doing. He's a very nebbishy, quiet, afraid person. Mm-hmm. Uh, very smart, but very closed off and timid, I guess is the word I'd use. 
And then one day they say, we've got a defector from the other side. And as the audience, we don't even know what the other side is. And he doesn't really know what the other side is. And then he goes in to talk to this defector and it's him. Yeah. But it's like a badass. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the um, whiplash version of J.K. Simmons. <laughs> the not my tempo J.K. Simmons. Yeah. Who's tough, who's assertive, who takes no BS from anyone. And uh, he has come over, and when it turns out what, and, and, and this is explained in the pilot, although it's a little bit of a surprise for the pilot, it turns out that there's a passageway, a physical passageway that you can go through beneath this building and end up in another version of our world. And that when it was discovered, the two worlds were in sync. And as they had more interaction, the two worlds began to grow apart and change. People in one world would die. Mm. There was a terrible virus in one, in one of the worlds. Uh, and it, it isn't a multiverse where there are thousands of worlds. There are two. And essentially, they're competing against each other. There's, there's greater technology in the prime world, the world we start in. Mm -hmm. So they're always trying to study our phones and things like that to, to move ahead. And it, it really is great because I think it, it points out uh, that these time travel stories and warring timelines, you know, that's science fiction and it's fun and it's fun to really stretch our imaginations and think about the what if of it all. These are actually very realistic stories. The, the East Germans versus the West Germans and that whole Russia versus the United States dynamic, East versus the West, communism versus capitalism, mm -hmm. the way things would develop in our side of the world were different than the way they developed in the other side. The cars, the medicine, the technology, the politics, the perspective on the world. And so you have this in a grand scale, I mean, in an extreme, crazy, fantastical scale where it's warring timelines. You have it in a big scale, grand scale, when it's country against country or culture against culture in that case. But also within the same town or within the same city or within the same high school, you can have a bifurcated society where life is just different for certain people there than it is mm -hmm. for others. And right. there's a whole culture happening uh, that you're not aware of. Again, in your city, in a neighborhood, in a, in a, in a workplace, right? Like there can be clicks and, a, and, a, and oh, I didn't know that was happening. Why didn't somebody bring me in on that meeting? Like, I think this is a really fascinating way of looking at how humans gather together and work together and how they remain apart. So that's my little, that's my little description of the meaning of Secret <laughs> Wars, is that the Secret Wars is about all of the different factions that share, a, a, I guess, a broad universe, but each exist on their own plane and are each trying to assert dominance. Right. For their own survival, I think, is the idea. And uh, yeah. uh, just one quick thing, I think... I think you can watch Counterpart on um, Amazon, but it is, it is a Stars show, so I think you need a Stars subscription or oh, to watch it or something like that. But yeah, thank you for correcting me. You're right; it is absolutely a Stars show. And, but it was—I uh, haven't watched it, but I know that it was like very beloved by people, and then they were really bummed that it like didn't catch on. I know a lot of really smart uh, people with good taste, including yourself, who really liked it and, and yeah. wish more people had seen it. So, I think yeah. I have my Stars subscription through Amazon. Oh, that makes uh, sense. So yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that, uh, Stars. No. <laughs> Stars just threw their phone across the room. Okay. Thanks a um, lot. The show you canceled too soon, by the way. <laughs> um, I want to bring up this this question of, of 
of timelines and 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 the TVA possibly manipulating things and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I want to bring up this email we got from Katie who said, when Endgame was released, people were saying that the rat that turned on the quantum realm machine and freed Scott Lang was the real MVP of the movie. Did the TVA plant the rat to turn on the machine? If so, other than resetting the timeline when Nexus events occur, do they manipulate events to make sure that the sacred timeline is kept? Katie. Mm. What do you, I mean, I don't think we have any evidence one way or another, but what's your, what's your impulse here? My impulse is, um, Sometimes, I mean, maybe. I don't think the rat's going to become the character. <laughs> and Pizza Rat as the timekeeping rat. Like, I think uh, there's, that's a possibility. Um, in his book, 112263, yeah. Stephen King used this great term called, uh, this phrase, time is obdurate. That, like, the more you try to change things in that book, the more you more pushback you get it's almost mm. like you're fighting entropy like mm-hmm. this is a this is the this is the course of the stream and anytime you try to divert the water it's going to hit up against rocks that just naturally push it back like that there's almost like a like a uh, an autoimmune thing that kicks in mm-hmm. with uh, an autoimmune defense system that kicks in in time so yeah. maybe the I could see the I could see there being sort of like an automatic the TVA has this thing where yeah time kind of gradually will try to nudge itself back in. I think the rat almost feels too coincidental. It doesn't seem if you're going to dispatch a rat to do it, why wouldn't you just just dispatch, you know, <laughs> a, a, an Never agent of the a TVA rat to do a Minuteman's job is what yeah. you're saying. Um, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? too, like that too chaotic, too chaotic of a thing. I yeah. think that seems a little yeah. bit more like the natural timeline trying to. Time is obdurate in Stephen King's terminology. And like, uh, you know, yeah. have you ever had that experience where you just feel like you're trying to do something and just everything gets in the way? You hit oh, every sure. red light or there's some yeah. weird thing pushing you. Like, am I cursed? What's going on? Am I not supposed to be here? I think that's a different thing than overt manipulation. So I think if I, I'm going to, it's a no from me on the, on the rat thing. <laughs> Sorry, we don't have to Shark Tank this uh, yeah, people's questions, a- <laughs> but but I mean I think that um, one thing I'll say is you it's know a cool idea, that, Katie. I don't mean to like step on your hustle. No, 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 no. I, I um I think something that that we get in this episode when they go to the Ren Fair, right, and they're in their sort of tactical gear, and they don't have to worry about blending in because they're about to like you know yeah. nuke this whole branch, right? So they're not trying to blend in. But like, and and we have yet to see like the costume closet at the TVA. So I think for the most part, when when they intercede, um, they're doing so in a way where they're just pruning. They're not manipulating. It would be a different show and one that I would love. And and this is what Amal's book is about: is about time agents going back and insinuating themselves into the time stream in order to change things. Do you know what I mean? In order Mm -hmm. to influence things and going undercover. But thus far, we have not seen any TVA folks attempt to go any kind of undercover. Um, uh, Not even as a rat. So there you go. Um, Okay. (laughs) Um, I want to take a brief uh, interlude. Do you want to talk about this thumbprint, the thumbprint (laughs) cookies that you got from Uh folks? This is my favorite thing that happened over the weekend. So in the last uh, episode of our show, I talked about Josta Cola and uh, or, I don't know if it's even a cola, but the Josta soda pop drink that uh, that Morbi- Mobius drinks and how I had already seen episode two. So I was thinking a little bit ahead to the Kablooey gum sequence mm-hmm. in this episode where 
kablooey gum, which isn't a product any of us recognize because we're only so far uh, in the timeline in real life as 2021, that this is a gum that exists several decades in the future. It's in the 2050s, right? If I'm remembering correctly. Right. And, uh, you know, they put it together that there are, these are basically that the TVA is able to pop in. If you have the ability to go back and forth through time the way the TVA does, that one of the fringe benefits of that is, is recovering objects that are no longer foodstuffs or whatever music, (laughs) things that are no longer around Mm -hmm. that you can just sort of take back. And I mentioned, you know, my personal experience of moving far away from my home in Western Pennsylvania and like. There being elements like bakeries and food, just different kinds of foods and things. And one of them was these chocolate thumbprint cookies from the grocery store Giant Eagle, which everybody loves back there. It's a cultural thing. (laughs) And uh, I mentioned like, you know, whenever I would visit and come back, I would hoard these things. And so my theory was, does Mobius have some connection to the 90s? Because he also brings up loving uh, jet skis and the Mm -hmm. jet skis, I guess. Were they invented in the 90s? I mean, they're still around. I thought they right? were invented in the 80s. I don't know why he pinned it as like a some sort of brief shining moment of jet ski yeah, uh, supremacy. Like, <laughs> but, as far as I know, people yeah. are still riding those little water motorcycles around. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but he mentions, you know, this era of the 90s. And so I was like, maybe there's some connection back to uh, to the uh, um, the 90s for this character and what film or TV show connects back to the 90s except Captain Marvel. And uh, so anyway, I had told this little personal story, like my own experience of like harvesting something that's from another time and place and bringing it back to my my present day. Um, and we received a number of emails from people who were, uh, I guess they were they're from Pittsburgh, because otherwise, how would they know? But that, you know, sharing my love for these things. But one of them, I have to mention like that I, you know, tried to concoct a recipe for it. Uh, and someone sent a link to a website, uh, uh, a baking website, for uh, that's called the Brown Eyed Baker. And she was struggling with this recipe too, and she uh, has come up with something that really closely approximates it. And the funny thing that happened when Joanna sent me that email was, I said, oh, I know Michelle, the Brown Eyed Baker. She's married to my old friend Joe uh, that I grew up with who was the best man in my wedding. And I was, uh, I, I was, I had not seen this post, but we both share this, uh, this uh, effort to reverse engineer thumbprint cookies. So. It was a real rat on the Scott Lang van moment where you're yes. like, Oh, fun fact, this link that uh, the person sent in and the person who sent that in uh, is Ruth Ann, who is also the person I, who suggested I read uh, this is how you lose the time war, which resulted in our guest here. So Ruthann had like many ripples through this podcast this week. So thank you so much for your is, emails, Ruthann. Is Ruthann is Ruthann from the TVA? Is she manipulating time <laughs> for me to get in fr- get back in touch with my old friend and through his wife's baking website? And, 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 and it is this an effort to get me uh, off of the keto diet and back onto eating carbs? Through anyway, like, please, yes, yeah. please do keep sending your thumbprint cookie recipes to Anthony Bresdikin, and hopefully by the end of Loki, he will have mastered this recipe. So, um, so but, yeah. Joanna, this all led me to one other theory, though. Yeah. Oh, hit me. Okay. So I was like, hmm, is there some connection back to Captain Marvel? What could that mm. possibly be? Mm-hmm. All right. This is very. This is very tangential. I'm not. This is not a hill I'm going to die on. But 
if you were to think of an image of Talos, the Ben Mendelsohn character from uh, from Captain Marvel, an mm-hmm. iconic image of him, what would it be? Sipping a soda for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah. You remember that scene when they're in the house and he reveals yeah. that he's not totally the bad guy and he very he's like sort of sarcastically sipping from a soda? Yeah. Could that be just a soda? I love that. It's so funny that I, I'm so glad that I came up with the right iconic image. I was like, don't fail this test, Joanna. Yeah. <laughs> sipping from See, like, sipping from like a fountain soda. You and I have a, we have a, we have a super twin <laughs> psychic connection. So I knew you would come up with the right thing. But yeah, there's that, it was like a meme of him like, it was sort of a, a, I don't know what the, how would you describe the context of that meme? It was sort of like a, uh like you know it right like yeah very casually like <laughs> confident oh my god now uh, i need anthony breskin to explain the of essence of more memes <laughs> explain yeah, the essence of this meme in five five words or less anthony but, breskin i love it but if but is it possible that mobius is talos i mean we saw a scroll um in like a tracksuit in the first episode of loki sort of hanging out in the tva so like scrolls definitely something that they're going to want us to like keep our eye on right this idea of mobius being someone else is really compelling i think not just because it's something that i thought of but i think in general it is and and i'll i'm happy to keep uh talos as or a any scroll as like a possibility here i mean i think at this point knowing that secret invasion is coming we should be prepared secret invasion is an upcoming disney plus show that's based on a comic storyline about the fact that like scrolls are not only here they've been here and they've been maybe some of your favorite characters all along and so um that's kind of why why i was feeling a little bit more confident about this idea of mobius being someone else's because like one argument against mobius being someone else is that they've already done the villain hiding in plain sight twice with disney plus shows with sharon as, as the power broker and uh with agatha all along right but mm-hmm. I'm like, well, maybe that's intentional and maybe it's the theme. And the theme is this because they're preparing us emotionally, psychologically for secret invasion. Like that the threat is under your nose at all times. The scrolls have always been here sort of thing. Do you know? Mm-hmm. I think so. I don't know. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, so we have a couple of theories here, right? That, that, that Mobius is Loki, a secret Loki. Mm-hmm. My josta soda <laughs> 1990s thumbprint weird uh hell's a poppin that led us to um <laughs> to uh perhaps it's talos because talos comes to earth and he'd been here for a while right or he's been mm-hmm. back and forth but if he's visiting earth in that time and place and he falls in love with josta soda and jet skis <laughs> are there jet skis in captain marvel i can't remember <laughs> i don't think so they're pretty land- so. landlocked maybe captain that, marvel yeah. too uh but uh uh, what is it called? The Marvels. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I could see him coming back and be like, you know what I really loved was that Justa. So, you know, All right. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, about Mobius in disguise. I'm going to run through the Loki theory and then we're going to hit, we're going to hit another theory. Okay. So like the thing, when Lady Loki shows up at the end of this episode and she is played by Sofia DiMartino and she's blonde and she's American, it establishes to us that Loki doesn't have to be black haired and, and British. Right. So like the question was like, is, is, is Mobius a Loki that looks like Tom Hiddleston hiding himself to look like Owen Wilson? And the point is he doesn't have to be if Uh Loki can look like Sofia DiMartino, the actress playing Lady Loki. Right. Exactly. uh, Because a lot of people wrote in saying like, 
I like your Mobius's Loki theory, but like, given that magic doesn't work at the TVA, how could he be hiding himself? And I guess what my point is, like, there's two options. One, a Loki might have figured out how to crack that. Or two, this is just what this Loki looks like. <laughs> he looks like Owen Wilson. You know yeah, what I mean? So I don't yeah. think that's the thing is that the Loki doesn't have to look like, and this is a multiverse standard in storytelling is that mm-hmm. the, you know, it's not that you're a twin of your other self. It's that you are different, but you somehow share this interesting similarities. You know, it's it's almost like an actor playing your role in a different right. dimension. You know, you're never going to look exactly like Johnny Cash, but you're Joaquin Phoenix's Johnny Cash, you know, so. <laughs> um, someone, someone, one of our listeners, and, I, and I'm so sorry, I can't remember who it was at this time, but someone wrote in with this idea that maybe this is not even, this is not just an Owen Wilson looking, maybe this is our Loki looping back somehow to mentor himself to something i tried to watch this most recent episode episode two with that idea in mind and it didn't really track like some of his anxiety around pompeii and stuff like that like you know you can only make bird noises like some of his behavior i I don't know either he's doing a really good acting job which loki is capable of or that's not quite what's happening here but um but i but i like that possibility i've been thinking about it And, and it feels like very much that mobius strip thing that you keep bringing up a loki looping back on himself (laughs) in order to mentor himself would be would be interesting the other thing i wanted to bring up this idea of of uh the loki lectures we got an email from uh hubert about this but i had read about this before they've they've talked about this a lot this idea that tom hiddleston gave these loki lectures on set uh that i think had a powerpoint element but i could be wrong about like what how he plays loki and what it means to play loki they call them loki lectures and Mm. i I, I, they they were just saying that he was just giving it to the crew but i think what's really true is that he was coaching various people like sofia DiMartino or possibly richard e grant or possibly jack veal who could be playing kid loki like the loki lectures were really him giving like a master class to these other actors in what, how to capture the essence of Loki. Right. Yeah. Like, and I, I think the joy of the Lokis is their variation, but you do have to have yeah. that some commonality. Right. That, that what, I guess that's the thing is what, what do you love about playing Loki? Right. That's a yeah. great, that's right in line with those questions. So, um, yeah, that there's an essence there, but, um, it's important to have both the essence and the ver- variety. We got this email from Jordan who really hates the, the Mobius's Loki theory, and I liked his email, so I'm going to share it. Um, Mobius being Loki, I think, diminishes the importance of his character. If he was, if he were another Loki, that almost implies that Loki is the only clever character in the MCU, that only someone clever as Loki could match Loki's intelligence and ambition and wit. That if there was someone great enough to go head-to-head with Loki, it would have to be Loki himself. I'm much more drawn to the idea of Loki realizing that he's just a speck of, uh, of a bug in the universe, and there's a whole world and department of people just as smart and clever as he is. I respect um, you, Jordan. That's a good, yeah. uh, Hey, I, I, I completely get it. And, yeah. uh, legit criticism of the theorizing there. Shark, shark tank thumbs up from Anthony Brest. <laughs> yeah, so can I, can yeah. I respond to it, uh, with a little bit of a defense of our, mm-hmm. our little gamesmanship here? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember interviewing, so, all right, war story time, interviewed George Lucas. And we were talking about American graffiti And he had a thing where he said, you know, I'm, people always say, which American graffiti character are you? And then he's like, I'm pretty much all of these characters. 
And I loved that and talked about that with him because I felt that too when I watched that. And I feel that whenever you see like an ensemble about young, young people, like you can kind of see yourself in more than one character. And mm-hmm. what I love about that is we spoke last time about your possible pasts, right? The mm-hmm. different directions you could be. And what I remember about being a kid is when I was with different groups, I acted in a different way. I would just, totally. it wasn't a front. It's just, you just behave differently. Um, it's a little bit like, I guess, code switching in a way when you're with different, uh, cohorts, uh, uh, and, um, you just change your demeanor, the way you think. And I think sometimes that can lead to significant changes in your own personality. So when we talk about, um, this show and the possibility that there are secret Lokis, I think of it in that way is, is this is almost like diving into his his personality or into his subconscious and reckoning with all the various sides of himself. Right. So they don't look exactly like him. They share traits, but these are all the different facets that make up who Loki is. There was, um, there was another movie like this years ago um, where all of the characters were like stuck at a motel and there was a oh, I- identity identity, right? <laughs> John Cusack and uh, it, Taylor Vince Pruitt, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, that explored a similar uh, notion. I guess I've <laughs> already spoiled that movie for you. Sorry, folks who haven't caught up with 2003 or whenever that came out. But, uh, <laughs> um, but I think that's kind of a neat theory. So, so I don't think Jordan, we're trying to diminish the importance of of uh, of of Morbius, but I do think it's sometimes we have that little Jiminy Cricket within ourselves that. Uh, uh, it is still a part of us. It's just a different part trying to be heard and seen. Um, first of all, love an identity shout out. Um, <laughs> and sorry, I, I bungled it. It's Pruitt Taylor Vince, who's a character actor. Mm-hmm. He's fantastic in that movie and in other things. Um, uh, let me introduce another theory. All right. <laughs> this came from, from someone else via a friend to me, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of into it. The Mobius is Kang theory. Um, mm. this idea that like, and, and I was, I was chewing it over in my head. Um, Kang, as we've talked about before, is this character that will be played, um, in the future by Jonathan Majors and in, in Ant-Man Quantumania, Ant-Man 3. Um, and, uh, and in the comics is a time traveling major powerful entity that we think is maybe one of these three timekeepers that we keep seeing. Um, here in the show and um, it should be noted that in the comics uh, Kang has appeared in different forms right there's like there's definitely a young version of Kang and stuff like that so um, I guess and and the main reason we've been thinking a lot about Kang is the fact that Gugum Batara's character is uh, Ravonna Renslayer who is Kang's you know the love of, of Kang in the comics right object of his affection so, given that someone planted this Kang scene, and I was watching the way in which Mobius interacts with Ravana in this episode, where he's just like genially jealous of this, like of her other time agents, and uh, you know, he keeps bringing he keeps bringing it up, like, oh, you got other time agents? Who are they? Blah, blah, blah. And it's just sort of like, is he like sucking up to her? Is he flirting with her? Is he like what's What's going on there? And, and like, would that fit for for a Kang? Like, and then he says this thing about, like, how he's like, oh, I never met, I've never met the timekeepers. And he's like, thank goodness, except for that one. And it's sort of, like, seeming like he's 
talking about Kang for a second. I don't, I don't know. What do you, what do you, what do you think of this idea? I definitely picked up on some Cary Grant, Grace Kelly, mild flirting mm-hmm. uh, between them and not in an overt sexual way. It is a workplace after all the TVA, but uh, just sort of like a play, like a playful banter better, more than just boss and subordinate, but like, like people who've been in the trenches together for a while Mm -hmm. and have a deep respect, but also a deep affection for each other. Right. And I felt like she was putting up a little bit more of a few more walls and like trying to keep it a little more on the level. And he was trying to just sort of climb over those a little bit. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. and, um, and a little bit of jealousy and a little bit of like, he was talking to her like a friend. She was talking to him like a boss. Mm -hmm. And um, I definitely sensed, envy in him uh a little bit of inferiority complex but those were all the things i previously mentioned made me think maybe he is loki so if this uh, this time loop aspect and and like what what would king be doing undercover as a mobius in uh, tv and like my only my only possible answer at this moment is like if if king as himself uh mess things up with Ravana, and I don't even know what Ravana is, if she's, like, a creation of the TVA. I don't really even know what kind of entity she is, but, it, like, and in a bid to be close to her was my best idea. And it, it goes back to this whole idea of, like, what do the timekeepers want to preserve in this sacred timeline? Like, what are they so invested in preserving? And there's a part of me that's, like, I I wonder if this is all just Kang trying to hold on to Ravana. Like, that would, it could be. I mean, hopefully not in a creepy incel way, but it just like feels like um, a he love a motivation, like or or an, or a fixation motivation um, doesn't feel outside of the realm of possibility when you're talking about someone like King. So, I mean, he is a villain, so if they're yeah. you know that's not a healthy romantic behavior, but it's right. a, he's a bad guy. Um, but also, you said what did they want? And I think what they want is detente, right? Because they were each the rulers of warring factions. And so what you have is this alliance where, okay, we're all going to agree this is the timeline. We're all going to exist in it or exist outside of it, policing it. Um, But that's just according to the TVA propaganda. Like, that's according to their own... But, video. but, you know, human history is full of alliances meant at keeping the peace, right? The war to end all wars was World totally. War I, uh, immediately followed by World War II, which is, which is also, uh, you know, the big one when, you know, we were going to have, you know, peace at the end of this. And, of course, um, what ends up happening is you have the League of Nations, then you have the United Nations, and... Let's see. Let's look at this at the TVA as like a three person or a three state uh, United Nations. Well, if one of them, say Kang, is like, yes, we're keeping the peace, 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 peace. That's what we want. But actually, what he would like to do is be in charge. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, there <laughs> yeah. are history is full of alliances that ended up being destroyed from within by. That's true people who decided i don't want to share power anymore so it could be that uh, it this all could be an effort to create so much disruption that it shatters the alliance and kang can now assert dominance uh, 
one of our listeners, David, wrote in with this phrase that I really like in terms of like thinking about this sacred timeline and why is it considered sacred? Why do they speak of it in terms of like religiosity, right? And he writes, the idea that the timekeepers are gardeners of a specific flow of time tells me that the sacred timeline serves a purpose, right? Their state, their, their, their explanation is that it's peace, a detente, as you put it. I think we should be skeptical of that. <laughs> That's what I think. Um, l- we got this other email from Dan who writes in about uh, an Isaac Asimov uh, story, The End of Eternity, mm. which I've never read. Um, but this is this is what he writes. So much about the TVA and Eternity are similar, from their bureaucratic natures to their focus on one timeline at the expense of many, that I can't stop thinking about how its plot, the end of Eternity's plot, might be a model for Loki. After all, the show has already started poking at why the TVA thinks it knows best, and the very vocabulary of its mission, the sacred timeline, suggests a theological strand open to challenge by heterodox thinkers like Kang or maybe even Loki. This would mirror the ending of The Good Place, another show that seemed to have been an influence on the TVA. Anyway, I predict that the TVA is either evil or at least in need of reform by show's end. Uh, comes from Dan, which I really like. So, oh. Yeah, I mean, the, the good place, you know, Eugene Cordero is here from The Good Place. It's definitely like, definitely giving me Good Place vibes all the time. But, oh, I um, love him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, that's an interesting theory. I haven't read that uh, story by Asimov. Uh, boy, Asimov's having a moment, isn't he? Uh, with Mythic Quest. <laughs> Mythic Quest, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, Asimov's and, always having a moment. <laughs> that's yeah. what I think. That's what Asimov's I think. Asimov's always having a moment. And, you know, so uh, that's an interesting theory. I think, you know, again, to, to I, I keep repeating myself with this, but when you look at patterns in history and in storytelling, any organization that's created to keep the peace keep order eventually uh either falls or succumbs internally to uh to bad behaviors that uh it was never intended for you i know, mean the, so- yeah the the minutemen um the minutemen literally like they look fascistic do they not <laughs> like in their in their uh they in their- look like cops uh at protests who are in riot. At a protest, you know? yeah. And um and the judges are dressed it doesn't Ravana wear like a brown shirt, which is also fascistic World War Two uh comparisons, you know what I mean? Uh so I don't know. I just I yeah. I, I think it's it's worth uh keeping an eye on them. And 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 I talked to Richard about this a little bit, but like if the T V A is evil or something or or you know, or maybe Mobius and Ravona don't even know that it's evil. They're they're good good entities working for a, a nefarious organization that happens in fiction all the time uh maybe in reality but um is lady loki actually the villain the good guy? or is she the hero <laughs> right yeah right you know that's the thing is marvel also has a history of this look shield was the good guy organization mm-hmm. and it turned out to be the bad guys all along it was mm-hmm. agatha all along right like <laughs> uh or it was um I think that's a thing that Marvel loves to do, which is to to say that, uh, and I think this is to say that you can't always trust the people that we entrust with power. Mm -hmm. And I think this is not such a profound thing. I think it's the kind of thing you learn when you're 13, right? You get a little older and you realize, huh, maybe my parents or maybe my teachers don't have my best interests at heart. Like, you know, you get hassled by, 
a cop or you're just hanging around with your friends and it's like, oh, maybe they're not such like officer friendlies. Um, mm. I think whenever you just run up against the power structure as a young person, you you realize that um, that these are organizations run by humans and humans are fallible and humans have bad instincts sometimes. And uh, people use their power in bad ways. That's like a facet of growing up, like coming of age. So Marvel, of course, comic books were written for kids. And I think this is something that you continually learn as you as you as you progress through life. It doesn't matter how old you are. I think you're always surprised, like, oh, the group that I thought was doing the right thing is actually maybe not. Mm -hmm. And that's how you figure out your own place in the world. What do I believe? Do I go along with my friends? Do I go along with my political party? Do I go along with the status quo or what my company's doing? Um, You know, it's, I think we are, if you're a, if you're a decent person, you're constantly evaluating that sort of thing. And I think the TVA definitely, like, we're made to trust it right now in the beginning of this show uh, because order feels trustworthy. Mm. And yet, I don't know. They're kind of rude, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. Loki has this line when and he's talking rigid. to Mobius. It, Loki has this line when he's talking to Mobius where he says, you call me a scared little boy. I know something children don't. No one bad is ever truly bad. And no one good is ever truly There you good. go. Oh, good callback. And All I right. hope that that's like the morally murky area that we're going to be living here. And okay, it's last last Mobius undercover. The thing that really got me into this like Mobius is Loki undercover theory in the first place, because I had already seen episode two when I came up with that, mm-hmm. was when Lady Loki as Randy in the rocks cart says to Loki, our Loki, oh my God, you went undercover. Now, Loki's not really undercover. Nobody, nobody, like, <laughs> he thinks he's running a game. Uh, everyone knows what game Loki's playing. But I was like, but what if there really is a Loki undercover? What if there's an, actually a Loki undercover at the TVA? You know what I mean? And what if it's Mobius? So, you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing I wanted to mention about, I don't know why, but it's sort of <laughs> sticking in my brain. The rings on the side table in Ravana's office. Yeah, that feels like a time loop thing, and I don't know if it will be, but it just feels like something that's going to come back. Could so. it be Venn diagram? It could, but I was thinking more like he's been. We're going to see when that other ring was made. I don't know. I it's mm. just something that's sticking in my brain as like a time loop sort of. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. Possibility. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. I was looking at it as rings, as loops, like themselves, yeah. as objects, and yeah. like. Is there something there that's showing, like, this world... Inter- there are three of them, if I'm correct, right? So, like, there are three timekeepers, and I was like, is this going to be something where, like, they all... what, Where do they intersect? And that's the sacred time. I, but I think I was just maybe falling down the rabbit hole on that one. But I think you're right. I do think, I do think there's a reason for those rings. I can't quite wrap my mind around what they mean yet. The other thing that I can't quite wrap my mind around is that she has this pen that gets a very uh, uh, conspicuous shot. And it says Franklin D. Roosevelt High School pen. And like, oh, my God, have I tried to figure out what that is. And oh, my God, have I talked to another TV critic who knows comics, who wrote, who watched this episode and he tried to figure out what it is. And we cannot figure out. What the Franklin D. Roosevelt High School pen is about. So I I think it's one of those things that you're not going to solve 
independently because it's so general like god google roosevelt high school like uh, you get like what a zillion Uh. (laughs) you know a zillion hits on on google so i think what's going to end up happening is at some point they're going to connect back to that yeah it's going to loop back and and a light bulb's going to go off and he's going to be like oh oh this this person has been in this office who may have brought this pencil back or pen was it pen or pencil it was i think it was a pen but yeah yeah Yes, exactly. It, I mean, it, it, probably. To- total Chekhov's gun moment. Yeah. Chekhov's yeah. gun theory being that Anton Chekhov said, if you, if you see a gun uh, mounted over a fireplace in the opening scene, it's going to go off by the end of the story. So, yeah, there's no reason to point it out unless you um, are planning to return to that. Same thing with the ring. Chekhov's... Uh... Franklin D. Roosevelt High School, uh, high school yeah. pen. Yeah. <laughs> and, but why a high school? Why a spoon, cousin? Like, why a high school? Like, um, uh, is this a Kid Loki thing? That's That was my best guess. Like, uh, Yeah, that's a is, good guess. That's you know, really guess. Is, is that where Kid Loki goes? I don't know. Anyway, okay. So a um, couple other things before we go. Uh, I just want to point this out. I have no information. This is not a spoiler. I have no information on this. I just want to point out that actress Jamie Alexander, who played Lady Sif, uh, has been liking a lot of Loki social media posts mm-hmm. and commenting on them, commenting on like production posts and stuff like that. So, are we going to see a Lady Sif appearance? I don't know. Dang. I miss her. I would like to see her come back. Yeah, yeah, it would be great. Mm-hmm. By the way, thing, great yeah. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves callback. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's on my mind because people are being idiots about it on the internet again. They okay. Are? Um, oh, well, that's uh, a different conversation. We'll save that for later. <laughs> Um, all right, last last thing that I want to raise with you before we head out is um, this notion. I think it was Alan Seppenwall who brought this up to me, so I want to make sure to give him credit. But I've been trying to pay better attention to the music um, that they use on the show in the score uh, and elsewise. Um, I mentioned to Richard that there's a, from the film Seven, there's a, East, a, a music Easter egg when a piece of Bach music is playing during their library mm, research scene. Yeah which is the same that plays in seven when Morgan Freeman's doing his research. Um, But when Loki is looking at the Ragnarok file, um, the score, what the score that kicks in is, is called twilight of the gods is from the, the Thor Ragnarok score. And it's the score that plays when Odin is dying on the cliff there. Right. Um, And, uh, and and we see Loki have this moment where he takes in the you know nine nine thousand seven hundred nineteen casualties the the annihilation of his culture, and have this real moment with it. And um, something that I, I I once again I believe it was Alan suggested to me was that it, this was an interesting opportunity for the destruction of Asgard to have a bit more weight than it does in Thor Ragnarok, which is a Taika Waititi comedy. You know what I mean? And like that there is pathos in Ragnarok, there is. You do feel the weight of it, but like, do you really feel it? Because then all of a sudden, Korg's there making jokes. You know what I mean? So like, maybe this is an opportunity for a, a little bit of a different moment for us to think about the events of Thor Ragnarok. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like almost all of the Marvel projects, uh, the the Marvel phases, and I, I don't know what you would call the like this not new TV experiment, like. Is everything meant at retconning and appreciating the Thor movies? Like, they all seem to come back to the <laughs> Thor movies, which are generally regarded as lesser movies. Not Ragnarok, yeah. which is, uh, you know, I think impeccable. But uh, uh, I, always, I always think it's interesting how things circle back through Thor, you know? 
mm-hmm. and Ragnarok. So, yeah, I, I think it's... Well, I mean, part of that, I mean, I think part of that is that Thor is the, is the character that they had them, like, Ragnarok was already kind of this, like, retcon of Thor, right? Because they let Chris Hemsworth be funny yeah. as opposed to Shakespearean. And I think Thor is the thing that Feige at all might feel is in most need yeah, of a, of a boost. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ultron and Dark World, I think, being the two movies, and, and the uh, the original Hulk film being like the the movie's sort of most in need of a boost in the MCU. But like, but what's also true is that with Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans exiting the franchise, right? Chris Hemsworth now becomes, unless I'm forgetting someone <laughs> really important, he becomes sort of like Elder Statesman. The biggest or- original hero that mm-hmm. they have left. Yeah. And so making Thor feel really important maybe make sure that we don't feel the lack of a Chris Evans and a Robert Downey Jr. That's a thought I had. Yeah, it's the connection back to the original, you know, as you move forward, graduate on to new characters. Yeah, I agree. All right, we got a lot of emails about Steve, but I think we're out of time. This is already a really long podcast. So thank you all for your emails about Steve Rogers. We got a lot of them. We got diagrams. I promise we're going to talk about it. I just don't think we have time to do it today. Uh, Is there anything else you want to make sure that we touch on before we go, Anthony? Hmm, I think that kind of covers it. Uh, you know, we didn't hit on the uh, stained glass window. Oh, uh, yeah, the devil. Which is a very devil, a devil-looking thing. That's what the little boy said was had visited there. Mm-hmm. Doesn't look like La- Lady Loki, so I'm not quite sure what he was hinting well, it's at. Got you little, it's got little horns, and it's dressed in green, so I can kind of yeah. see that, like, it's a little bit of a Loki-ish figure, you know? You know, but we keep, you know, we keep feeling the Mephisto tease of, uh, you know, some sort of demonic presence arriving. Uh, but I thought that was, I thought that sequence was very cool. Um, you know, in the church. I love when they go back in history, and, and that, that, that clash of uh, anachronism with the, uh, you know, the riot gear TVA cops and, you know, the detective in the form of uh, Mobius in some, what was it, like 14th century French chapel. Like, I just, I think I love the, I love the juxtapositions and the, uh, you know, going back to, to Pompeii was very cool. Oh, so, sure. Tom Hiddleston telling everyone they're going to die in Latin while wearing his, like, popped collar brown TVA jacket is fantastic television as far great. as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and he has... A, I'm glad I'm glad you reminded me of that Pompeii moment because he has that's another moment that I want to call out. He's in between giving the speech. It's a comedy moment, right? But in between giving the speech, he has this like sort of tossed off thing to uh Mobius where he says, What is the TVA? It sounds like it's from the future. Pretty futury. And that was like a question we had last week of like, when is the TVA? It's out of time, right? So when yeah. when they say long ago there was the you know, the this battle of the multiverses it's like when is long ago to the tva we don't know yes uh know. it could be now so we'll see uh but secret wars is something that they could definitely be building to the russos have said they wanted to direct a secret wars film for marvel it could be a big event that they're building up to but there's a million big events they could be building up to so we don't know um but that's it we did it loki episode two i'm proud of us <laughs> anthony so reskin I, yeah 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 i want to add one thing yeah. and you don't know that I'm going to say this, but uh, <laughs> um, so to all of you who are listening, you know, we love and appreciate all of your emails and messages and everything, but 
Joanna, you know, she is the the guiding force behind this show. She sends me and Richard this amazing document that I wish you could see. I don't know that you would ever want to share this, Joanna, but like Joanna has created a Bible for this episode, just like breaking down her thoughts and all the theories and all the letters and all everything in it. I just wanted to say how much I appreciate you. You make this such a fun conversation every week. <laughs> and to the listeners and all that, I just wanted them to know how much thought and effort and 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 imagination and playfulness you put into your work on, in creating this show. It is so fun to participate. I feel like I'm going to like this awesome hangout every week when we get to do this. So thank you, Joanna, <laughs> for creating this uh, this 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 place outside of time and space for us <laughs> to hang out and do this. Oh show. my God, your checks in the mail, Anthony Bresnikan. But really, like <laughs> you know, I love being a part of it, and I love uh, that people enjoy our conversations. But I just wanted to give you, you know, your propers because you cre- you really create the environment for this show to exist. So thank you. Thank you for saying that. Um, your Franklin uh, D. Roosevelt High School pen will be with you shortly <laughs> as a thank you gift from me. Um, no, it's it's really I, I love doing the show with you and and yeah. with Richard. Obviously, it's always a blast. And 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 I love your guys's emails. Thank you so much. Yes, I read hundreds of emails. Yes, it took me a while, but like it really helps me understand the show so much better when I hear what you guys think about it, even when you disagree with me vehemently. Yeah. Uh, so please keep sending those in to stillwatchingpod at gmail um, Anthony, until episode three, which we'll be watching live with everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> where where can folks find you? Uh, you can find me over at vanityfair.com and trying to crack the giant eagle thumbprint cookie recipe on browneyedbaker.com. <laughs> 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 and reconnecting with my old high school friends uh, in the process. You can find Richard at Rylaws on Twitter. You can find me at Joe Wrote This. You can find all of us on vanityfair.com. And we will be back next week with more Loki shenanigans. Bye. Bye.